0: Well, this is the last week with our bulletin having that very dreary scene of the dark path as we started the series four weeks back about the pathway that gets painful. And uh, we've all experienced that, and when we do, we usually do whatever we can to quickly reach for something that's going to help us, help us feel better, fix our problem. If that doesn't work right away, we, we just start complaining. Matter of fact, when there's pain... People complain. That's just how it works. The normal reaction, it's the way uh, everyone seems to do it, and, uh, and I get it. I get it. And, and complaining, by the way, just so you understand the word, it doesn't just mean that we're telling people that we're going through a hard time. It's not just describing the fact that there's difficult things in my life right now. Complaining is really expressing our annoyance and our dissatisfaction, our frustration, our disappointment that all these things are happening to us. That's what complaining is all about. Well, maybe normal, maybe natural, maybe what people do, but it certainly is not uh, it's not mature and it's not godly, and uh, frankly, it's not helpful either. Um, I, I know that people do it, but there's a better way, a better way to respond, and we've talked about several aspects of walking through the valley of the shadow of death and whatever that might be in small ways or big ways when the shepherd leads us down a pathway that gets hard. We've looked at various kinds of pain in this series that the Apostle Paul demonstrates in his own life and things he was going through. We've looked at some things that we can try to mollify, as we said, or mitigate or try and repair, but then there's things we looked at last week we can't. If we're going to be Christians, we just cannot, we can't fix them. Uh, But today we're going to look at just the last four verses of Acts 21, and we're going to see Paul set himself up to do something in Acts 22, which is deliver an amazing testimonial speech about his life with great concern for the people that he's speaking to. But the context is so important, and while this kind of leaves us on a cliffhanger here at the end of chapter 21, I want to just deal with these four verses where he sets up and resolves to do this. And as he does, I just think there's so much we can learn about the option of just following the pattern of everyone else, scurrying around to see what we can do to kind of fix our pain, and then if that doesn't work, just complaining about it all. Because of course, as Christians, that's that really should not be our options. Matter of fact, if you know the Bible, and I trust that you remember passages like uh, Philippians 2:14, that says you shouldn't do anything uh, with grumbling. Or complaining. It just should not be the manner of the Christian life in all circumstances, 1st S5. We should give thanks in all circumstances. We need to have a different approach, a much better approach. And you're going to see a spectacular response to Paul's pain in this text. So let's look at it together and see if we can't learn a few things we should be asking, some things we ought to be thinking. And then uh, how we ought to act in situations where we find ourselves saying, I wish my life were different. I wish this hadn't happened. I wish I didn't find myself in this pain or have this diagnosis or have this trouble. But we are finding ourselves there. It doesn't seem to be changing. What do we do? Let's look at the Apostle Paul's life starting in verse 37. I'll read it for you as you follow along from the English Standard Version. Here's what it says. As Paul was about to go into the barracks, and if you Look at any scene from the first century of the reconstruction of how things look when the Romans were overseeing the Temple Mount uh, there was Antonio's fortress that was in the corner there, with pillars and built up. And it was a great place for the Romans to kind of look down on the Jews and what they were doing, kind of keep order. Of course, Rome was ultimately in charge and the Jews had some freedom. They had their own courts. They had their own things going on. But ultimately, they couldn't do anything big without the permission of the Romans. And as you remember, we had a riot on the Temple Mount because of the Apostle Paul. He'd caused such a stir there that the Romans had had to intervene and they brought him up the steps here into the barracks. It's called. This is going to be an interrogation room where he's going to be interrogated. That's what's coming. Uh, but he says to the tribune, the guy in charge, the head honcho shows up, the one who's in charge of the garrison of the Romans there. And he says, may I say something to you? And he says, the Tribune does, in response to that, do you know Greek? So we know he's saying this in Koine Greek. Koine Greek was the language of the common marketplace. Koine in Greek just means common, the common Greek of the day. There was Attic Greek that preceded that in classical period of the Greeks, stuff you might read in uh, classes you take in rhetoric or whatever. But you also had all kinds of other languages. You had, as we're going to see, he's going to address the people in chapter 22 in Hebrew. Uh, there was a dialect of Hebrew that was kind of the common uh, Jewish household language, which is a dialect of Hebrew called Aramaic. There was the old classical Hebrew that was still read on the scrolls of the Old Testament, and that was spoken of and spoken in, in terms of the scholars, and certainly Paul knew that language as well. Uh, there was Latin, of course, that the Romans spoke. So there's lots of languages, and a lot of people knew you know two, three, four languages in that day. And uh, he's employing now a response to the Latin Roman leaders. He's responding in Greek Now that differentiates himself from someone that he's responding now to, that there was some confusion, at least in the Romans' minds, as to who this was. Because if you read Josephus, who was the Jewish historian conscripted by Rome to write the history of the Jews and to kind of chronicle everything, and he was a bit of a turncoat, that's another story. But he tells the story of a lot of things that go on contemporaneous to New Testament times and Old Testament times. And he speaks of this, uh, this revolt, this, this false prophet, this false Messiah that had raised up. This is the scene he's talking about. He was from Egypt and he came in, and there was a, a, a riot, much like the one that was going on here. And Josephus writes all about it, including the 400 men that were involved in this. But he says, Oh, you're speaking in Greek. I guess you're not the Egyptian then recently stirred up a revolt that led 400 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. And Paul goes, no, I'm not him. Paul replied, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. And of course, Tarsus, if you read your study Bibles or look up in a Bible dictionary, certainly a prominent city in what is now the middle of of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And uh, Paul is is just stating that. Now, he can state a lot more, and we're going to find out more about his background and his pedigree and his citizenship, and some of it you know just by knowing your Bibles, But he starts with this, I'm a Jew, I'm not an Egyptian, and uh, I'm speaking to you in Greek, of course, which is differentiating me from the Egyptian. I'm from an important city, uh, and I'm just asking you, please, you're the authority right now, I'm in shackles, I, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, so the leader of the Roman army here says, yes, you can speak to the people. So Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. So he's going to the barracks there in Antonio's fortress. He turns around as he's going up the steps, and he speaks to the crowd. Now, what you have to keep in mind in this text, which we don't think of if we just read it, you know, Sundays apart, is what he had just been through. Matter of fact, scroll back up at what's going on in the previous passage. I mean, you can start in verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. So you can picture this scene. Here he was, he was a, a Jewish seminary grad. He was on his track to be a part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling court of Israel, and he's dragged out. I mean, his clothes, I'm sure, are not staying intact the way they were, uh, you know, if not torn, they're at least, you know, all scarred and scuffed and, and, and wrinkled as they're pulling him off by the scruff of his neck. They shut the temple gates. They were seeking to kill him, verse 31. Drop down to the bottom, the last two words of verse 32. They were beating him. And here the tribune had to go in with the Roman soldiers and stop them from beating him. And the tribune came up, verse 33, and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So just as Agabus said, as he illustrated with the leather belt of Paul, this is now coming true in two chains. So I'm picturing him being chained around his feet, being chained in his hands, And now he's been dragged away with micro steps over to the the Antonio's fortress. But the mob was so hostile toward Paul, it says they couldn't even walk him over there because it was a slow process. Verse 35 says he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. And Luke says it wasn't just a crowd, it was a mob. The mob of the people followed, crying out away with him. Now you have to keep that in mind. Because when you see him here going to the barracks, arrested in chains, beaten. Now I don't know. You got in fights in junior high or whatever. In my heist, fights, fights broke out several times a day in my junior high school, uh, and maybe I got in one or two. We can talk about that another time. Um, sometimes winning, sometimes losing. But uh, you know what you feel like getting beat on, right? I had an older brother. He was he made that his sport. I, I know what it's like to get beat on. And you do not feel like preaching at that point, but this is what he's going to do. He's going to ask the Roman official, hey, can I ask you a question? And it's going to get around to this question. Can I speak to them? Now, if you're being hauled off after a beating of a mob that wants to kill you, I just want to ask you the question. I mean, you're going to be on the phone with your attorney. You're going to be calling your friends, bail me out of here. I can't believe what happened. You're going to do what everyone does when they go through a hard time. Do things to try and alleviate your own pain, and if it doesn't get fixed right away, or if it takes longer than you think, or even if it is getting fixed, you're probably going to complain about it, because you're mad at all this stuff that's going on, right? And you might be mad at people. You might be mad at attorneys. You might be mad at the cancer. You might be mad at your job. you might be I don't know what you're mad at, the economy, the president. You're mad, but here's what the Apostle Paul does. He's asking, I'm thinking, just just keep your mouth shut. Get into the barracks. There's safety in there, They're going to give you water. They're going to, I hope, just keep you away from the violent mob. And no, you want to say, hey, 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 can can, can I talk to these people? And because you know, you've read the book of Acts before, I trust. You may not remember all the details of chapter 22, but let me just tell you, it's not some excoriating diatribe that he gives to these people. He turns around and shares his testimony. He shares uh, the gospel with them. He's turning around to minister to the crowd that just beat him up. Now I'm thinking, what do I do when I'm in pain? What do I do when I get some diagnosis or I go through some financial setback or I got relational problems or things at work are falling apart? I don't have this as a natural reaction. This is a mature and godly reaction, and it is a helpful reaction. And Paul is saying, how can I help in this situation? And I want to help starting with these people that we know in his heart he cared for. Romans 9, Romans chapter 10, he cared for them. He prayed for them. He wanted them safe. They were misunderstanding who he was, and he wanted to minister. Can I speak to them? And that's what chapter 2 is all about. Chapter 22 is all about. Chapter 22 is about him sharing this message that he's going to share. We'll look at it in the next series in detail. That's just a big deal. And I would say this. If you're going through a valley, going through a hard time, you're struggling, things are not going right financially, relationally, legally, medically, Whatever it is, you're starting to feel that pinch, or you're gonna feel it next week, next month, next year. Here's what you should do you should ask this question. Number one, you should say, How can I serve amid this pain? It's painful, but how can I serve in the middle of this pain? Because here's what pain generally does it puts you in a new position, usually surrounded with new people and new environments and opportunities. And you need to say, is this painful circumstance now opening up an opportunity for me? What can I do to serve? Now, that's not our natural reaction. We care about ourselves. We care about our own comfort. We care about our own relief. And here the Apostle Paul is saying, and we should follow this great exhortation, follow me as I follow Christ. And you know what Christ was all about? Most of his ministry was done during people that were hating him, And people that were persecuting him. He said, I came to serve, right? I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And Paul, he's not going to die on a cross for anyone's sins, right? But he's going to serve and he's going to spend and be expended for the souls of people around him. And when pain comes into his life, none of that's off the table. It's just a new opportunity, a new environment, a new situation in which he can serve. He's a missionary, he's a preacher. You're still always going to use your words, I'm sure, in whatever service you do, but you need to ask yourself the question, okay, I didn't expect this. I didn't expect to be stuck here or put into this or have this problem or be on dialysis or whatever you're going through, but what can you do in that situation? How can I serve? That's the godly response. That's going to take a few things. So let's build some subpoints here. Number 1, here's what it's going to take. You believing in the sovereignty of God. Now I know that was earlier in our series, but let me just reemphasize that. You have to believe in the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty, right? God's administration of all things. God is a God who is not saying this. And you know this theologically, but you need to know it personally. That God is not going, "Oh no, Paul just got arrested on the Temple Mount." Oh. Plan B, plan B. What do we do now? Right? God is not stressing about that. He's not wringing his hands. And you know, he's not thinking that about you when you get a, a cancer diagnosis. He's not thinking that when you, when you get the pink slip and you get laid off at work. Right? When you, when you get evicted, when you, when you get served papers, he's not going, oh man, I, poor guy. Tom, I didn't think that would happen to him. I can't believe it. What do we do? Angels, we need a meeting. What are we going to do? Why? Because God is sovereign. See, Job feels the pain of all the terrible things that are happening. Thieves steal his stuff. A storm kills his kids. Whatever it was in his body, bacteria right attacks his flesh. But here's the thing we know about the book of Job, which is true in every circumstance of suffering in your life. All of it is on the leash of God. All of it is on the leash of God. God is distributing this and allowing this only insofar... he allows it. And this is how it is. Even as Martin Luther liked to say, Satan is God's Satan. It's the Lord's Satan. And he operates on the leash that God allows. So nothing has happened to you that is a surprise. We've dealt with this earlier in the series, but not a bird falls from a tree apart from your father. None of this happens without God's oversight. Nothing is outside the purview of God. Your divorce, your cancer, your job, you, the fact that you can't afford a house or you can't have a baby or whatever your problem is that you're stressing about that is your valley of the shadow. of I'm not minimizing the pain. You should have pain. Pain is real. You know, we're not Christian scientists here, right? We understand the reality of evil, and we grieve over that, and it hurts, and we recognize the pain of all that. See, but we understand this. First of all, we believe that God is sovereign. Now, let me remind you of something that all of these trials should do for us jot this down. James chapter one, verse two, just start there in your minds. I don't even know this passage, but let me quote it for you. It says that we ought to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, Consider it all joy, my brothers, he says, so these are Christians he's talking to, when we encounter trials of various kinds. So you have all kinds of trials. And do you know what the next line is? Because you need to know that the testing of your, what's the next word? Faith. So all the previous valleys, all the times the turns and twists of your life took you into a dark, shadowy time. You know what you should have come out with? Increasing faith, deepening faith, sterling faith, tested faith, forged faith. And you're saying, I now believe that God is not only sovereign, but God is good, and He's knowledgeable, and He knows what's going on. He's not only knows it, but He's planned it all from the beginning. As Psalm 139 says, there's not a day of my life that was not planned out how vast is the sum of God's thoughts toward me is one poetic way it's put. And it says, and there, all the days of my life were written in a book, so to speak, even before there was yet one of them. So I know this, there's nothing that God goes, oh, I can't believe that happened to, to Mike. Not a single time God thinks that. Because all of this is working out a plan, out of a God's CEO's office where he works everything after the counsel of his will. So you need to build in every, every conflict, every difficulty you need to say, I, I need to have the faith to believe that the God that I'm serving, the good shepherd that I'm following, that none of this is a surprise. Even when your boneheaded decisions are, are contributing to the problem, and you know how, the, how that works, right? Sometimes we think, well, this can't be God's will because I caused all this, and I'm so stupid, and I've repented of all the things that led me. I understand that. But this is the mystery of God's sovereignty over all things. He even uses the evil and the wicked and the sinful things. To put you in a place that right now, in that valley of the shadow of whatever you're in, you need to say, okay, this is the environment that God's put me into. I know this, that I can still ask God, okay, God, I, I, how do I serve here? What do I do here? The testing of your faith produces, do you know the next word? What is it? Depending on the translation. Quote the Greek for me. right? Produces what? Hupalmone. I've said that enough from the platform. That was a test to see if you remembered the Greek word. Right? The testing of your faith produces hupomene. And the reason I like to teach you that Greek word is it's a compound word. Hupo means under, mene, or meno means to remain. Hupomene means that you can bear up under the difficulties. So the trials and the difficulties test my faith. And I start thinking, oh, God, where are you? I start wondering if God's even a good God or if God even knows what's going on. But we come out of it going, no, I know God knows. And I understand that God is good and God is sovereign and God is in control. And so we come out stronger and we're stronger still for the next bend in the road, the next diagnosis, the next you know crisis that I face and so we have now endurance so that we can be here's another Greek word teleos perfect it's translated in the ESV perfect teleos I've often talked about this word if I were to write a Greek lexicon of the, of the vocabulary of the New Testament I've said this before but the word teleos next to that I would put well let me illustrate it and I, Dad always used to give me uh, uh, tools. So many tools, I kept buying toolboxes. First it was just a box and then it was a box with drawers and then it was like you know the Costco full-blown you know, stand-up tool chest and then I, I got two of those in my garage now. I know it's crazy because I have no time to use all those tools, but it's full of tools, tools of all kinds, tools I don't even know what they're for. But over the years, I've collected all kinds of tools. And in my garage, I've got tools. And so something breaks at my house on a Monday. That's the day to fix everything. And I, of course, go to YouTube. That's why YouTube exists, is to learn how to fix things. And so I look at it, and the guy goes, rawr, 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 here's what you need. And it looks so easy on YouTube, by the way. But they lay out the tools, and they say, here's the tool you need. You want to get this under the sink? You've got to have this kind of uh, faucet remover tool special thing. And when they show me the tool, I go, oh, that looks familiar. I've seen that. And so I go out into the garage, and I hunt, and I go through five or six drawers. They're not very organized, but I find it. There it is. And then sure enough, I take that tool, and I get under that sink, and I get on my back after I laid the towel down to keep my back from hurting, and I get up in there, and sure enough, that's it. And it takes that faucet off, and ah, it's the word teleos. Perfect, right? It's just right. And if I'm going to write a lexicon next to it, it's the word ah. I just love it when the tool goes right on the problem. It's like, click. That's it. That's it teleos. So here's the thing. God is getting you ready to be perfect. Teleos, that means you're you're just just right for what's coming, just right for what's next, right? And lacking in nothing. Now, I'm quoting this from memory, but you know the passage, right? Think of all all the totality of it. You're supposed to consider it joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, And that having that endurance, you can let it have its perfect result. It can move into fruition so that you can be right, just right, teleos, perfect, ready for whatever comes next, adequate and prepared for every good work. So you're ready. So all of these things, I'm just saying, including the arrest on the Temple Mount for the Apostle Paul was all a part of God doing what he's doing. Nothing's outside the purview of God's sovereignty, and God is continuing to work out his purpose. Now, that's we started the series four weeks ago with this dreary, dark path, the painful path. And we started quoting a verse that if you quote it too quick in the middle of someone's pain, they start being frustrated about it. But it's true, Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That phrase, that line, called according to his purpose, reminds me that God is gonna work together for good all the things that the Christian, that I love God, is going to encounter for his purpose, called according to his purpose. So I know this, God's got a purpose for the Apostle Paul. And guess what was a part of that? To be arrested and beaten on the Temple Mount, to turn around and talk to the people that just beat him in the face, right? And threw things at him. And, and, and cursed him, or did whatever they did to show derision toward Paul. And he was now going to be halfway up the steps. By the time the garrison, here the leader of the army, would allow him to speak, and he's going to turn now and motion with his hands, probably chained up still. Or I don't know, maybe he got the shackles taken off, and he motions with his hands, and they're all going, that's the guy we just threw stuff at. That's the guy we just beat. And he's going to turn around, and he's going to start to preach. And he's going to share his testimony. That's what's going on in chapter twenty. That's an amazing thing. And all of that was working together to fulfill the purpose of the Apostle Paul that started in Acts chapter 9 when we learned that God was going to take Paul from his opposition to the church to be the number one spokesman for the church. And he was going to preach. He was going to speak. He was going to bear the name of Christ to the kings and to the Gentiles and to the Jews. And here he was, fulfilling his purpose. So when you get cancer, when you have the problem, when there's some difficulty in your life, when you end up getting divorced and you never plan to, you have some issue and problem where you can't work in the field that you got trained to work in, whatever the issue, you get fired, you just need to say, God's purpose for me is in no way, no way obscured by my circumstances of pain. Pain does not obscure his purpose for you. Right? It gives you the playing field and the opportunity that he had planned from eternity past for you to live that out. Now we're going to figure that. out. Here's a text. You've got to write this one down. This one's so good. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Just write the verse down. Let me read it for you. Paul says, because I was preaching the gospel, he says, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. And he's not complaining. He's just saying, here's the situation, and here's how I know he's not complaining, because he says, but the word of God is not bound. Right? That's just a great line. I am bound as a criminal, and I'm suffering here. But here's the deal. God's purpose is not bound, because God's purpose with me is to get the Word of God out through me. So it's getting done. God's getting His purpose done even when I have these problems, even when I have this pain, even with the thorn in my flesh that I prayed reflexively would go away. It hasn't gone away. I'm still struggling. I'm still suffering. My spouse has died. Right? My, my house, I was in. Ev- whatever the situation. Now I, I'm saying this is a divine opportunity for me to fulfill my purpose. How can I do that? By the way, back in your minds to James chapter 1, after he says, you've got to think about your trials as the forging of your faith so that you can be ready to do whatever God has you to do. And God's going to have you do those things within the trial, and when you come out of the trial, it says this now, if any of you lacks wisdom, do you know that verse? Right? Let him ask of God. And now let me quote. Let me see if I can quote from memory here the next part. Who maybe sometimes might possibly give you some wisdom. <laughs> if you don't mess it up like you did last time with the wisdom he gave you. Is that how that verse goes? Correct me now, Sunday school grads. Who gives to all, not just missionaries and pastors and theologians. He gives to all generously, right? Without reproach. He doesn't say, what would you do with the wisdom I gave you last time? I can't believe you're back to ask for more wisdom. No reproach, generously, without reproach. But you've got to ask without doubting. So you need the faith to say to God, God, help me now. How can I take this trial, this struggle? How can I be useful in this? How can I help? How can I be salt and light? How can I be your ambassador? Ambassador in chains, ambassador in a, in a hospital room, ambassador in an empty house without my, my husband. How can I be the ambassador you want me to be? You've got to ask that question. And don't just ask it of yourself, although you have some history in the Scripture and history of, of walking with Christ. Some things might immediately flood, flood your mind. But do what, what it says there in James chapter 1, verse 5. Ask for wisdom. Because God says he gives generously. you just got to ask. But don't ask like you don't think you're going to get it. I'll give you wisdom. That's such a great passage. He gives generously to all without reproach. But you better ask without doubting. Because if you're a doubter, you're like the waves of the sea driven and tossed by the wind so we need to know this your trial whether it's right now next week next month or maybe even the one you came out of it was all a part of god's plan and it is going to be useful for god fulfilling his purpose in you we just that's a fundamental bottom line foundational predication of everything that we teach as christians because that's what the bible says god's revealed himself that way and all of this needs to be seen as an opportunity a divine opportunity ask how can i serve amidst this pain. So, so important. Now, back to our text. Some weird stuff starts happening. This, you know, multilingual seminary grad is going to ask the Roman, right, who knows Latin, going to ask him in Greek, hey, can I say something to you? And he goes, you're speaking in Greek. Now, I don't know if Paul thought he was being mistaken for the Egyptian. I doubt it, but maybe. I don't know. But God certainly uses the fact that he's going to speak in Greek. This is an important thing. You look at all the commentaries, trying to see all the nuances of this. But he doesn't stay in, in, in Greek. He goes on now to say in Hebrew everything he's going to say in chapter 22. And there is some debate whether that's the Hebrew dialect. Is that the dialect of Aramaic? Was that the common household language of the Jews? Or was that maybe the scholarly language of the, of the, you know, the learned scholars of, 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 of Judaism? I, it doesn't matter. All we see in this text is there's clearly a shift, a shift in terms of language. And even the way he speaks to him, he doesn't just turn around and start talking to the crowd. He asks the authority and he says, I beg you. I mean, look at the middle of this passage when he says, You're not the Egyptians. He says, No, I'm a Jew, Tarsus, Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. So even that's bolstering this request. And it's not like I'm nobody here, I come from an important city, an outpost of, of Rome. And I beg you, permit me to speak. I beg you, permit me, give me permission to speak. Even the deference he shows to kings and those in authority, in this case, the, 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 the tribune who's in charge of the Roman soldiers. Hey, I just beg you, sir, please, let me speak to this crowd that just beat me up. Just a lot of finesse here. And a lot of interesting moves even in language to show Paul's thinking very strategically about this. Okay because he wants to be effective. Number one, he wants the right response because he wants to serve. So he's going to do things to set it up so that he can serve. He's going to ask with the right kind of deference and and, and polite request to the Roman soldier. He's going to think, well, I got to do this. Now's the time I'm going to talk to these people, but now I'm going to shift the language to Hebrew because that's going to mean something in a certain way. It's going to speak to them, even though they're trilingual, I'm sure they're on the Temple Mount. There's a lot of strategy going on here. Why? Because like us, we need to, number two, think How can I, in this trial, be most effective? And Paul's mind is going. How can I be most effective right here in this situation? And for him, he's going to shift. He's going to defer. He's going to ask. He's going to move. He's going to act. He's going to do all the things we're going to look at later, but he's thinking. He's like Jesus said to be as shrewd as serpents. He's not just blurting out, well, I just want to share the gospel with people. He's he's setting this up in a very important way. We're going to need some help with that. Let me think biblically about four different things that will help us. Four words, just four words, okay? Here's the first word. If I'm going to look at my situation say, how now can I be most effective in serving the purposes of God in my life right now? And assuming now the context of this whole series is I'm in pain. Okay. That in particular, although this would apply even if you're having the best, most rosy season of your Christian life. But I should ask these things. I should have these four words. Let's use them as verbs, as imperative verbs. Here's the first one assess. You need to assess. Assess. You need to look at a situation and basically ask, what are the needs here? What are the needs? Think with me on this. What are the needs? Like you find yourself in a situation and you say, okay, what are the needs? That's what assessment's about. It's the discerning nature. It's like Second Chronicles said about the men of Issachar. Remember the 12 tribes of Israel? The men of Issachar, the particular leaders that we're going to consult, the, the leadership, the king. It says the men of Issachar, here's what it says, understood the times and they knew what Israel should do. Good to have advisors like that. They know the situation, and now they know, based on the situation, what Israel should do. Now, that's good on a national level, and we should sit in committee meetings, I suppose, thinking about church planting or thinking about missions work overseas, and we should strategically think about those things in the big scale. Right? Just like the men of Issachar. What's the, knowing the times. Like, What's the best thing to do? What's the best way to go about it? How should we assess what the needs are? That's, that's helpful, right? but I want us to think that way individually about my own life. I want to look at my life and say, right now, what are, the, what are the opportunities and the needs that people have? Not me. I know my need. I'd like to get out of the pain. But assuming that that's not my first priority, what are the needs here of the people? And that's so helpful is for us to be able to very carefully assess what's going on. And we don't have time to look at this passage. By the way, that Issachar statements in 1 Chronicles 12, or 12, or no, 12, 34. Even the next tribe in that passage spoken of the men of Zebulun, they're men of war. They had a certain strength, and David was able to put them to a particular purpose, I'm getting off. But let's get here on Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, just jot this down, verses 28 and 29. 29 in particular is one that's right at the heart of it. So Let me start with that one. It says that we ought to, this is going to necessitate assessment, let no corrupting talk come out of our mouth. So no vulgarity, we don't want to hear you, know, you dropping F-bombs, you need to have good speech. But it says, no, you need to not just think about taking the bad stuff out of your, your speech. It says, but speak only what is good for building up as fits the occasion, so that it may give grace to those here. So there's assessment that's going on in every conversation. And what I'm saying is you find yourself in a situation you don't want to be in. I'm saying, okay, I'm going to say, how can I serve? How can I serve people? How can I serve God's purpose with those people? And now I'm saying, okay, how can I most effectively do that? i got to start with assessment. Like, what are the needs here? Number two, here's the second word, letter B. I need to prioritize. You start assessing. You take out a piece of paper in your laptop, so to speak, you pull a document up and you start writing, or you pull out a tablet, you start saying, what are the needs in this situation? Those need to now, after you finish writing as many as you can, you need to say, let me put these in an order of priority. Now, Paul's going to share the gospel in chapter 22, and that, by the way, for evangelical Christians, should be at the top priority of of everyone's list. I mean, the end of time, let's say you're attached to uh, some... Physical therapy after some car accident, you're in pain, you find yourself in months of, of therapy. Well, here you're surrounded by people you wouldn't normally just go to if you were healthy, so you should say, okay, what are the needs? Well, it would be great if the guy who's taking me through my physical therapy was had faith in Christ, so let me talk to him. Or you find out maybe he's a Christian. You think, well, he doesn't go to church. Well, I need to make sure he gets plugged into a church. You can create the needs list, but then you need to say, what's most important? Right? If, if the guy needs, like, uh, I don't know, um something fixed on his car and you know how to do it. Well, that's, that's something that can be done, but it's not as important as whether or not he's going to heaven or not. So we start to prioritize what, what should become my first and most important thing to do. There's a lot of things Paul could have done in this situation, but he's going to deal with their, their spiritual welfare by talking about Christianity and how they can be saved. And as ambassadors of Christ, always at the top of the list. Yes, we're supposed to be salt. Yes, we're supposed to be light. But first and foremost, we're ambassadors of Christ. So, that is always going to categorize things at the top. As a matter of fact, let me quote another passage that you know, familiar text we quote all the time Matthew chapter 6, verses 32 and 33. And I want to take this paradigm of prioritizing and take it out of the context that Jesus gave it in, which is anxiety. And he says, listen, when when people are anxious, here's what you see other people. Here's the normal response. The Gentiles chase after all these things. What are we going to wear? What are we going to eat? Where are we going to live? They're worried about making sure they're not sitting there thinking about, "I, I don't know if I have enough to retire. So they go out there and make sure they have everything in place. Well, that parallels a lot of what we're talking about here in terms of pain. When we have pain, the average person says, well, how can we fix it? What can I do to fix it? How can I get out of trouble? Call the attorney or I'm sick. I got to call the specialist and I got to find the you know, homeopathic solutions and I got to see what they got going on in Tijuana that might be able to help, whatever. <laughs> on and on and on we go. And all I'm saying is, listen, here's the next line. It starts with a contrast of conjunction in verse 33. Gentiles chase after the, the, the solutions immediately. I got to fix it. Here's what Jesus, but speaking to his disciples now, right, the crowds that were there listening to him, you, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, they'll be added to you. God'll take care of all that in whatever measure he wants to. And I'm not saying you shouldn't go to the doctor. Right? If you get your leg cut off, you, you probably should seek some help for that. But, he, thanks. but here's the thing. You need to realize that your whole thing about, like, how can I get back to peak performance, and I want to do that, you know, 5k next year, and whatever. This is a silly illustration at this point. But you need to say, that's not my top priority. My top priority is to seek first the kingdom. It's not that I don't care about what I'm going to wear or if I have enough to retire. Okay, those are legitimate concerns, but the Gentiles, and it's a strong verb, I always translate it when I quote it offhand as chase. I think the ESV may say run after all these things, but it's like they're, they're desperate for it. Well, Christians should seek first the kingdom of God. And I'd say the same thing in pain. You're struggling. It's not like Paul's just rushing in there to find an attorney to get him out or let's get a bunch of Christians together to fit. It's like, no, let's not think about my thing immediately. Let's think about the need. And so he's prioritizing the need, and the need really at the top of the list is not his own comfort. It's not his own release. It's what are the needs of the people around, and what are the most important needs in those people? So you have to assess needs. You have to prioritize, okay? Here's another one. Let's just put it this way. You have to strategize. As long as I already quoted the verse, we need to be as shrewd as serpents, We need to strategize about the effective way in which we fix this problem. They have a need. How do I fix it? And Paul is assembling in his mind clearly in this whole passage, not only about what he's going to say, but the languages he's going to say it in. What exactly do I do? What exactly do I say? How do I do I do this? Strategizing. Now, I say all that because the Bible says that. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we ought to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, and Paul's certainly surrounded by outsiders at this point. Hostile Jews down below, you know, arresting Romans all around him. It says, but make the best use of the time. What's the opportunity? No, do the best thing. Do the the most important thing. And he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. So you need to think clearly about taking this and most effectively doing that. Now, when I say that you need to think about, you're in a pain, you're in a painful trial. How do I meet the needs of people around me? How do I prioritize those? And now I say, how do I best get those things done? How do I best address those needs? Here's what I'm telling you. Yes, we need to plan. Yes, we need to think. Yes, we need to be shrewd. But let me give you one more passage. This is worth looking at. Go with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. It says in verse 11 and 12, Luke 12, 11 and 12, that it's going to happen. You're going to have opposition. You're going to have painful trials. And in this case, just like Paul, you're going to be brought in before synagogues and rulers and authorities. And he says, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself. Now, it doesn't say you shouldn't think about it. Of course you should think about it, but I'm not going to be anxious about it. Or what you should say. Should you prep something in your head? Of course you should. But you should not be anxious about it. Why? Because you know this, you're not prepping alone, because this isn't a purpose about your comfort. This is the purposes of God's objectives in the people around you. When you go to that place to deal with that situation, God has purposes, and you're just trying to align yourself with those purposes. So the Holy Spirit certainly cares, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So I'm, I'm strategizing, but I always strategize with faith. I always strategize with belief that God wants to get this done more than I do. If I'm trying to take my interest and my efforts and direct them to what are the needs in this situation now that I find myself in this trial, I know this. God's Spirit certainly wants to get that done. God's Spirit certainly wants to help me know how to do it. What do I say? What's the best way to do it? What's the most efficient way to do it? We need to assess, we need to prioritize, we need to strategize, and just because this is happening, even with the change of language, which takes me back to a principle we've already camped on, so real quickly, let me just use this word. We need to contextualize in the best sense of the word. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, we need to contextualize. To the weak, I became like the weak, after a long list of what he has become in whatever context he's in. Why? So that I might by all means win some. Right? Become all things to all men that I might by all means win some. He is going to try to make this work on every level. Do you think he cared about the Romans in the conversation? Of course he did. Do you think he cared about those Jews on the temple? Yes. And he was going to contextualize his message in every situation. If you don't think that's a biblical concept, I would just tell you to go through the gospels and look at Jesus encountering non-Christians and him sharing the gospel with tax collectors, with Zacchaeus, right, with the woman at the well, the Samaritan. Just look at every time he's sharing the gospel with a rich young ruler, you will never find him sharing that message the same exact way twice. You just won't. He's always contextualizing. Doesn't mean the truth doesn't, doesn't mean the truth changes. It doesn't. But his his method, his approach. And you need to give more thought, not just to how do you can get out of your pain or how you can complain about your problem. But God, how can I be useful in this? And it starts with you saying, I want this to be an effective use of my life in this trial assess, prioritize, strategize, and contextualize. Verse 40. Back to our passage. If you turned anywhere, I think you did. I think I had you turn. Acts chapter 21, verse 40. And when he, that's the tribune, it's the one in charge, gave him permission. That's Paul, gave permission. Paul standing there on the steps, a motion with his hands. Now remember, he's probably got a split lip, his Eye is probably starting to swell. I mean, I don't know how bad he looked. His clothes certainly weren't looking the best. Didn't look like he did when he got up in the morning. I mean, he's he's been through a riot. He motions with his hands to the people, and there was a great hush. You can imagine, even if you were throwing stuff at this guy, this guy's turning around. He's gonna say something to you, and there was a great hush. And he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Even that strategy there, we've seen that. But he is now going to. I just want you to notice what you would want to do and what he is doing. Two different things, right? I don't want to preach a sermon of forgiveness and grace to people, right, that have just been beaten on me. That's why Jonah didn't want to speak to the Assyrians. Why? Because the Assyrians were beaten on the Israelites. He didn't want to turn and give them a message of, of, of faith and repentance. He didn't want that. And yet Paul was doing this very unnatural thing. Let me see how I can help these people, even the people that have caused the trouble, right? Think about that. That's just an amazing approach to the problem. And he does it, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. He's doing it right now on the way up, up the stairs to the Antonio Fortress. He's about to go into the barracks where he'd get a little relief from people throwing things at him. And instead, right now, right here, halfway up the stairs, I want to talk to them. I want to help them. That's a big deal. And I would say this, we need to act in that way. Let's put it this way. Number three, you need to act while and when, or I put it this way, when and while you can. Because your actions in your trial shouldn't wait until you've dried all your tears, shouldn't wait till you feel healthy, shouldn't wait till you feel cared for, shouldn't wait until you're on the, on the outside end of this or till you see the light at the end of the tunnel. Start serving now, start evangelizing now, start helping now, start being a blessing now, even in the middle of your pain. Do it now. Because here, here's why a few things. You see the, the questions on the back of the printed worksheet or you scroll down on the digital worksheet. I've got those questions every week, you five questions. Look at the first question. I got three verses there. Let me just, you already have them. You don't even need to write them down, but let me read these to you real quick. Here's one reason you should do it now, even if you're in pain. Because, Psalm 39, verse 4, we should understand that God has given us life, but life on this playing surface of the earth, right? This, this life we have is, is temporal. Lord, make me know my end. I'm not living forever here on this planet. And what is the measure of my days? Just remind me how fleeting I am. And even the next line, behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. You know what a handbreadth is between the thumb and the longest finger? It's a small measure that they use. Like, hey, would you move that picture over four handbreadths from the corner? I mean, it was just a small measurement. They weren't carrying tape measures around. My life is like that. On the wall of time, right? I'm just a little handbreadth. My lifetime is is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands before you as a mere breath. Even as James says in James 5, he says, you know, it's just like, we should be careful what we think about in terms of long-term planning because our life is like a vapor. It appears for a little while, then it's gone. So one of the reasons we should act now, and pain should not be a reason for procrastination, is that our lives are short. We don't know how much time we have. We don't, we, don't, we don't want to think, you know, I can wait to do this good deed. I can wait to share the gospel. I can wait to deal with this. I can wait to utilize my gifts. I'm going to wait till a, a green pastures and still water season of my life. Don't wait. How about this one? Matthew 24, that's the second verse in that first question. I'll make you look up in your small groups. Jesus is talking about his return. He says, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And when it does, it's done the bell goes off. I mean, at some point, God has on his calendar, the bell's going off and we don't know when it is. I remember as a kid, three o'clock, man, I would watch that clock for the last five minutes of the day. Every, I'd drill a hole with my eyeballs right on that clock. And I knew as soon as that, that 2.59 was done and it snapped on, that government walk, clock snapped onto the three, the bell was going to ring. And I knew it. Right? The thing is, I have no idea. I mean, I can think, well, surely sometime mid-afternoon, Christ is coming back. But you don't know. Some of you sitting here listening to me talk about your death, you go, ah, you know, I'm in my 20s, I've got a long time. You don't know. It could be Thursday and your life is over. Because Christ's going to come back and be dispatched by the Father to get his church. And when that happens, your opportunities for good are over. All the good that you should be doing, all the blessing that you should be providing, all the evangelism, everything that you could do is going to be over. And if your pain is becoming something that is justifying you kicking down the can down the road for you doing what you know you should do, I'm just telling you, we just got to stop with all that. And I often quote this one, but I put it on your worksheet anyway. John chapter 9, verse 4. It's the screensaver on my laptop. We, that's not just Jesus, we must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. So I know whether it's the return of Christ or my death, my opportunity for the doing the work that God sent me to do is temporal. It's fleeting. Every opportunity is fleeting. And if you think, well, I was going to do this for the Lord, but now everything's changed. Well, it doesn't. Nothing has changed that God did not sovereignly put in your path. Now, he's asking you to fulfill your purpose in that pain. Don't wait. Don't procrastinate. I just love that we must do the works of him, the father who sent me while it is day because night is coming when no one work. works. So you might as well get to it now. What is it you want to do? What is it you need to do? What is it you know has to be done to fulfill your purpose as a Christian in your little sphere of the world? Well, this isn't the sphere I thought I would be in. I thought I would be married. I thought I'd have kids. I thought I'd live in a bigger house. I thought, whatever you thought, it isn't happening. But what should be happening is that the purpose of God in your life should not be shackled. By the difficulties and pains or, or, or health problems that you have. Fulfill your purpose and do it now. All the opportunities are, are, are fleeting. Here's one just to throw on top of all that Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Galatians 6, 10, he says, So then, as we have opportunity. I just love that. Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. What is it? A lot of people sit back and have all these intentions of what they would do. And, and the Bible's so clear right? Do it. As soon as you see the opportunity, if the door cracks open, just do it. What about this one? Luke 21. Luke 21, it's the passage I started last week with when I talked about Jesus saying there's going to be nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom, great earthquakes, famines, pestilence, all that's going to happen, terrors. And then he says this, uh, but before this, right? They're going to lay hands on you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to deliver you up to the synagogues and the prisons uh, and, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Paul's experienced that right here in his trial. He says, I love this, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Just a great line. All the bad stuff that's going to happen against the backdrop of all the bad stuff that's going to happen in culture, this will be your opportunity. You've got to see the struggle that you're in as an opportunity. You have to see the valley of the shadow as an opportunity. You've got a job to do. We got to act when and while we can. And all of that is fleeting. One more passage, please. First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four. All these things kind of tie together in this great text about our stewardship. Start in verse 7 with me. Follow along as I read this great text. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. At any moment, return of Christ or my death, I just know it could be over any time. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You ought to be praying. You ought to be praying for wisdom. You ought to be praying for boldness. You ought to be praying to fulfill your purpose. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. I'm not talking about finding relief and comfortable life for you and tranquility and comfort and peace. What you need to do is love. You've got to love the lost by sharing the gospel. you got to love Christians by doing the things that God has equipped you to do. Love covers a multitude of sins. Even evangelism is going to blot out a multitude of sins. So there no excuses with, with problems and offense, but ultimately, you've got to get to work what you're supposed to do. Number nine, verse nine, show hospitality to one another without complaining. Well, if I had a bigger house, we could do, well, I could do more. If I just had, stop. Just do what you're supposed to do. Be kind. That's all, That word, by the way, hospitality, is loving outsiders. Get people in your sphere and start to serve them that you wouldn't normally, like Paul is with Roman soldiers and with Jews that want to kill him. As each has received a gift, Paul's a preacher, he's about to preach. Use it to serve one another. That's the whole tenor of this whole sermon. As good stewards of God's varied grace, what can you do in this situation? What are the needs? I've assessed them. i prioritize prioritized them. I've strategized. I'm going to contextualize, and I'm going to go and get this done. Whoever speaks, hey, you better speak like it matters. Like you're pulling back the curtains of heaven to show people God. That's what oracle means. It's like you ought to speak as though it matters. You ought to be. You to speak so as to for people to listen, right? And the great hush comes over the crowd, and Paul's going to lay it on them, not to castigate them, but to share the gospel. In verse 11, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength. of that God supplies. And how does he serve? You want to talk about going the extra mile, staying the extra hour, spending the extra dollar. The rich God, the powerful God, the God who never gets tired, that God's doing all kinds of things. He wants to endow us with, if you're going to serve, you might as well go to the wall with your service. You might as well stay the extra hour. You might as well spend the extra hour. You might as well do whatever it takes. Go the extra mile. You got to do it. With It's like God is empowering you in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion. It's like, it's like the day spring card just keeps getting higher and more lofty in this last sentence. And then you might think, well, that sounds great. And I can just imagine doing that when everything is tranquil and there's green pastures and there's still waters. Yes, I want to do that, but I'm just, I, I can't do I can't. I can't do it with this stuff I'm dealing with. Beloved, verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. All of what's said in verses 7 through 11 are certainly true even if you're in the middle of a fiery trial. That's the whole point of this series in chapter 21 of Acts. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. By the way, when Jesus said, I've come to serve, not to be served, to serve. Did that service come when he was walking by still waters and in green pastures? Most of it was in the valley of the shadow of death, when people were throwing rocks at him, when people were wanting to kill him. Right? How much of the ministry of Christ took place when he was encountering opposition, like most of it? And I'm just saying, if you're waiting till things get better, now's the time. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. He was a servant in the midst of his suffering. I want to serve in the midst of my suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Because you're going to say, attaboy, that's exactly what I want. That's what I did. That's what Paul did. That's what you did on the other side of the globe 2,000 years later. Attaboy. And you can rejoice when you hear that kind of commendation. Doesn't matter if it's insults. Doesn't matter. God's blessing sets on you. I just love that you are blessed because the spirit of glory, the greatness of God rests upon you. you got to act when and while you're able You've got to trust God to make the difference. He can. God can work through what you say. God can work through what you do. You just have to be saying, I want to align myself with his purposes. D.L. Moody was uh, uneducated largely, right? Self-taught just in the Bible. He used bad grammar. Some of his theology was a bit whacked, but he was committed to seeing people brought to faith in Christ. And he shared the gospel with one guy who came to faith under his ministry. He was a Cambridge student He was a star athlete in Cambridge Athletics. He was a trust fund baby. He had all kinds of money endowed to him. And and he was the rich young ruler, if you will, of of Moody's ministry, one of them. And uh, unlike the rich young ruler of Matthew 19, this young guy, he listened to the gospel and he responded. And and he had everything that would make his life comfortable, everything that would make his life convenient. And he said, you know, what is the need? He assessed the needs. And he started because of his life choices, because he decided to follow Christ. A lot of his life got way, way harder. You should look up his story. But he goes to say, where are the needs? And in his day, the biggest needs in the world that were talked about was the need in China. It was like the the gospel wasn't going anywhere in China. So he got involved in missions in China. And this guy put all this comfort aside to say, I want to be useful to God. He strategized. He was smart. And the work that God did through this guy, very, very impactful. You should read about it. He had a great name, by the way, for a college athlete with a lot of money. His name was Stud. Do you like that name? C.T. Stud. Look him up. About 130 years ago. Did great things for the Lord. But he wrote a little poem, and that poem has been set to music. And that poem, maybe you've heard it, is a good summation of all we see here Paul doing. In Acts 21, he called his poem, Only One Life. And that's really all you got, right? Here's one of the most poignant lines. Only one life. Yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then, in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What won't last is your complaining. What won't last is all the failed remedies to try and fix your problems. What will matter is how you glorify God in the midst of those troubles. Just whatever the fiery trial might be, and if you're not going through it, you will. And when you're there, don't back off the gas pedal of trying to serve the Lord. Be like C.T. Studd and say, I'm going to work to see if I can spend and be expended to be useful to the master wherever I find the greatest need. Do that regardless of your pain. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Reminds me of the great lines of Paul as he sat in prison in Philippians chapter 1. He says, I'm, I'm just resolved. Here's the paraphrase. I'm resolved that no matter what, I'm going to glorify Christ, whether by life or by death, whether this works out well for me or whether it doesn't. I just want Christ to be glorified. Because Why? Because for me to live is Christ. And if this thing kills me right, in prison for preaching to, God, to die, you know the verse. Verse 21 is gain. We have nothing to lose here. There's temporal discomfort and pain involved, but let's give our all to serve him in the midst of whatever you might be walking through. Let's pray. God, this series I hope has been helpful for us as we think about the pains, problems, and for some people it's huge, the grief of bearing a loved one, hard. But God, whether we find ourselves in the midst of great loss or chronic pain or financial trouble, or career struggles, or relational issues, or legal disputes, God, I just pray that we would say, what can we do? Like the Apostle Paul with shackles on his legs and his hands to say, how can we serve? What can we do? Just like Christ, in the context of Christ, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, say, how can we be useful here? Let us think strategically to be effective. Let's assess all the needs. Let us put first the kingdom needs first. What are the biggest far-reaching things that we can do for good in this situation? Make us shrewd. Make us wise. Let us prioritize well. And then, God, let us never wait. Let us work and do it now, whatever it might be. God, I know a lot of people in this room are saying, well, I can't because I hurt too much. I pray that we would see even the therapeutic aspects of us putting our hand to the plow and not looking back, even when it's hard, drying our tears just with the headwinds of, of, of the heat of summer as we try to go out and do the work in the fields that you've called us to. So God, give us what we need, empower us, give us strength to serve you. Come what may, in Jesus' name, amen.